When we, um, anytime we show a video in the church <clears throat> service, typically, or somebody wants to show a video, we tell them to keep it under two minutes because past about two minutes, it starts feeling awkward. Past about three minutes, it starts feeling really awkward. But if you show the one another verses from the New Testament at five seconds apiece, it takes a little over four minutes just to read them all. Clearly, God is <clears throat> very invested in this idea of community. Um, God's word is very invested in this idea of us being a community. God's nature, his character, his own identity is founded in this idea. God is a community in and of himself. God is a community. He is a community of sacrificial love by his own identity. That is a, that's a great picture. It's a great reminder. And so it's not surprising to us that, that there is a sense of us, we, all y'all, all of us from Scripture. That we're talking about the church, that a significant part of what it means to be a church is us, we, the people who are gathered. But this is a diverse group. And we talked about this last, last week, and how this is a diverse group even just in here. <clears throat> and this is, this is probably as non a diverse group of Christians as gathers anywhere in the world. And yet we are radically still diverse from one another, very, very different from one another. Everything from our backgrounds and our ethnicities and our sex and, our, and our, what we were raised with to what our weekend has been like so far, to whether or not you're disappointed about the Cowboys game yesterday. That's, that's a, like, th that kind of stuff really does divide us in this room today. So if simple, everyday, common, constant things divide us, and that's, that's just here. Imagine if we're talking about the church spread throughout time and space without limit for thousands of years. Think of how diverse that body is. One of my greatest honors ever was getting to go and speak at Mahdi International Church in Cairo. And so getting up, right before I got to preach, and I had to preach, I can't remember, it was three or four services. And for example, one of the weird things was the last service was um, entirely um, Nigerian refugees who were in Egypt. And, and, and it, like, I got down to speak after the second or third, I can't remember, and the guy said, by the way, this last service, reverse the order of your service. Like, just, just, just preach through it just like you did, just start at the end and work your way the other direction, because Nigerians think in an opposite direction than we do as Westerners. So... Do the exact same sermon, just start at the end. Like, what the heck? Like, that's crazy. And so I was like, that's, that's, not, but I did it. And it was, it was great fun and, and, um, and like very engaging and entertaining. The, but it, before, right before the first service, my friend said, hey, here's what I want you to do. He's like, I just want to make you feel jealous of the way I get to engage with the kingdom week by week. I want you to get up. And the first question I want you to ask is at the count of three for everybody to shout out their nationality like what country they were born in. He goes, and then, just to really show off after you've done that, I then you want you to get them to shout out what continent they were born on. So sure enough, of course, I go, so what country are you from? Ready, one, two, three, and it's like, bah! Because there was no, you couldn't understand a single individual word. They were from over, well over 100 countries were represented in, that, in each of those services. What blew me away was then going, okay, what continent are you from? One, two, three, and it sounded, six continents were represented at this international church in Cairo. Now, what a great picture of the kingdom of heaven in a, in a much broader perspective. We are a diverse people. 
the, the church is made up of radically different people from very different cultures from all around the world for 2,000 years, then what could possibly unify us? What could possibly bring us together? Then what does it mean that we are we? What could that mean that we are we? Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Listen, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the one and only thing that must unify us. We have different roles, different gifts. We're a diverse population. And the rest of Ephesians 4 goes on to say that. But we are unified by what? By our submission to Almighty God. By who our shepherd is. One Lord, one God and Father. The unity of the Spirit. What unifies us as being His. The church is His. We find our foundation and purpose and creation and identity in Him. We are identified by our relationship with one another. Should hear that. We are identified by our relationship with one another. We are defined by our relationship with Him. Matthew 16, 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is this is very clear language. This is, we, I told the story last week. This is a very much so a two-part sermon. So if you weren't here last week, go to the website and listen to, um, to, next, to, to last week's after you hear this one because they very much so go together. That's the idea, though. We are his. This is his church. The church is his church. This is how this works. I will build my church. Colossians 1.18, the apostle Paul, making very clear to the Colossians about Jesus Christ, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It's all about him. In the end, fundamentally, beginning and end, him. It is his church. We are his. This is a fundamental. Now listen, we're not good at being his. If you're ever a part of a church and the leader of the church claims to always know what God wants for the church, you've joined a cult, not a church. If any leadership board or any leadership group or any, any group of whatever, if you're ever part of a church and their perspective is, no, listen, we are the only ones with a special finger on God's pulse. You've joined a cult. You're in a bad place. Get out of there. It's not safe. As humans, we are not perfect conduits of God's will, but we're committed to it nonetheless. I'm going to show how that works when we're done here in a minute. We are committed nonetheless to do our very best to follow his vision and his will and his picture because it's our identity. This is who we are. This is what we are. We are defined by this. We're different. So let me, let me ask. We are his what? Let's, pretend, let's play that as a sentence. We are his, fill in that blank. What are some things that we are his? We're his what? Sheep, children. We're his redeemed. What? Workmanship. 
We're his bride. We're his disciples. Any more? We're his image. Yes. Children. Excellent. Yes. We're his creation. Good. His what? Chosen generation. Yes. We're his chosen people. Listen to this list. Y'all nailed a bunch of them. Ambassadors, children, beloved, possession, treasure, servants, nation, priests, students, temple, people, workmanship, bride, sheep, body, branches, citizens, friends, and saints. And my guess is that's not even close to exhaustive. I just got exhausted at that point. Like I was, (laughs) what are we? We are his. And these are the things that we are his. We are his. And by the way, when I say saints, some of you think you're thinking about a game this afternoon. Saints here is a funny, that word has been abused. Saints doesn't mean the, the, the 2% of Christians who are somehow superior to all the rest. All followers of Christ are saints. That's what we are. It just means set apart. It just, it comes to the word sanctified. We're different. That should be clear to anybody. We are more patient. We are more gentle. We're more kind. We're more like Jesus than the world would possibly ever even want to be. We are different. Every interaction we have should be different the way it shines out. We're reminded by that. One of the cool things about us as as up and down creatures is Sunday morning reminds us again that we're different. It's one of the values of gathering together on Sunday morning. On my way here this morning, going down Big Eddie, and a guy was trying to unload, I don't know, like 16 giant bales of hay. So, of course, he had the entire road blocked. And, And we're piling up behind, like the cars are piling up as this guy's like now turned almost completely perpendicular to the road, trying to figure out how to get this, this giant tractor into his tiny little uh, dirt driveway. And, and the cars are starting to pile up. And everyone is probably thinking, like, I'm going to be late to church. I mean, I've got to assume at that time in the morning on Sunday, everyone piled up was going to church. I mean, that's got to be, where else would they be going? So, of course, no one's honking or getting in their car to go yell. Because they're, they're thinking it, they're like, normally this would have been cause for so much frustration and concern that people would be like, what's wrong with you? Get that thing out of the way. I mean, it was, it was really, it got well past awkward. Eight, 10, 12 minutes of sitting there while this guy, and he can't figure it out. And you know, all, those of us in pickup trucks are trying to figure out, well, this person get mad if I go through their yard. Like we're starting to, and, and, and I'm thinking, no one's making a fuss about this because these are all people going to church. They know they can't ba- act bad now. They're on their way to church. That's a, that's, that's a good reminder that, that, it's a, that they're thinking, how am I, I'm going to go yell at this guy for making me late to church. You can't say that. Can't, it just doesn't work. And so how do you, that, that picture of being reminded regularly, we are different. There's something different about us. We, the, 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 the bigotries and the selfishness and the egocentrism and the narcissism that are so wired within us are things we fight against. They're, we've got them too. But they're things that we recognize as vices that we don't want to exi- be exemplified in our lives. That we're dedicated trying to submit ourselves to something better and bigger. We're saints. If we, if we had that concept of recognizing that as our identity, that we are saints, we don't lose patience like normal people. We don't, we don't give up like normal people because we're saints. There's something different about us. Wayne Broderick, uh, our good friend, many of you have heard him preach because he preaches here. 
sometimes Wayne, Wayne in one of his uh, sermons talks about the, the, you know, the idea of being all about God's grace, but there are only two proper responses to God's grace. Number one is believing. The first response to, to God's grace being revealed to you is to believe that it is true and to believe in the one who has given it. A believer is positioned in heaven and given the Holy Spirit of God. When a person believes, he or she immediately gains justification as a gift. We are right before God in that moment because that's his good gift to us. As we've talked about through John, it causes us to faith, as in faith as a verb. We begin to faith in him, or we have been persuaded by the truth, so we believe. But there's a second appropriate, proper response to his grace, and that is to follow. It's natural that we should wonder if someone who claims to believe, but then doesn't follow, did they really believe? All through scripture, when you see that, those concepts put together, they're treated, it's treated as moronic, nonsensical. You don't light a light, you don't light a lamp, and then put it under a basket. That's nonsense. That's, intelligent people don't do that kind of thing. You don't accept that he is my shepherd, and then you don't follow him. You don't accept that he knows all and is Lord of all and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But you know what? I'm going to go my own way. This was a, I'm going to talk about something here in a second that, um, that struck me as I was thinking about this stuff. Um, we believe, we follow. So here's what, here's what Wayne writes. A follower lives by the power in God's grace, focusing on the rewards in heaven. When a person follows, he or she grows in sanctification, more saint-like, more Christ-like. We believe, we follow, or we seek to. I is also a part of we. So we don't want to treat those two ideas as independent. It's a common theme today in Christian publishing to create some false dichotomy and then try to make money off of it. But the idea really is, of course, if we are going to follow Christ, I must follow Christ. Our, our lives are not independent of each other. If, if you don't follow Christ, that affects all of us. Our, our following affects each other. Our failure to follow, our sin affects each other. Your sin affects me. Mine affects you. We are responsible to be, to be persuaded by what he has revealed, to believe, and to follow. See, we've been claimed. This picture, maybe, maybe some of the most beautiful pictures anywhere, part of why Mark is, is my favorite, just about my favorite thing in the Bible to teach the book of Mark is because there's so many beautiful pictures. So here you have in, in the book of Mark, in Mark 5, you have a woman who's been dealing with an issue of blood for over a decade she would have been ceremonially unclean, which, by the way, in the Jewish world just meant set apart. It, it wasn't dirty or bad or sinful. It just meant set apart. It just meant special. And so there's, there's, there's special roles for those type of situations. So because she had this issue of blood, she was ceremonially unclean. Couldn't touch money, couldn't touch people, couldn't prepare food, all that kind of stuff. God had, had created a system that worked beautifully for women during childbearing years. It would have been a gift to them. And we've talked about that multiple times. I'm not going to get into it today, but, but that would have been a, a beautiful thing that God created. But it, in a broken world, in a broken body, the, this beautiful thing was broken for her. So she had spent from some time in her young adult life, now for a dozen years, unloved and unwanted and untouchable. It may be that literally as she walked through town, children walked in front of her shouting, unclean, unclean, so that no one would touch her accidentally. Because if anyone she touched, they became ceremonially unclean. 
So in, in a world that we can understand today where women face this constant pressure of being not enough and insufficient and unloved and unwanted and all those things, she was the living embodiment of all of that. But she heard a healer was coming through town who might could heal her, but there was a huge problem, and that is he typically healed people by touching them. And I believe, it doesn't say this clearly in Scripture, but I believe that she, because she was afraid that Jesus, if she came to him and said, would you heal me, might say no. Because I don't want to make myself ceremonially unclean. So I believe that that's why she snuck up on him and snuck up on him as he walked by the road. He's walking with this massive crowd with, by the way, a, uh, an official from the synagogue who would have known the law backwards and forwards. And she sneaks up on Jesus and she creeps through the crowd as she touches the hem of his robe and she is immediately healed and she knows it. But terrifyingly, immediately Jesus says the word, she fears who touched me. The crowd all steps back and here she is down on her hands and knees. I would assume the crowd goes silent or a gasp goes up from the crowd when they realize that a ceremonially unclean woman has just touched Jesus. But before anyone can say a word, Jesus turns to her and says, my daughter. See, we're defined by being his. He claims her in that moment. This is the only woman Jesus calls my daughter in the Gospels. My daughter. Before all of these people, these are fighting words. Anyone have a problem with it? This is my daughter. That's why we treat one another as daughters. And sons, by the way, the only person Jesus calls son is the paralyzed man who is lowered through the roof of a building. He is as worthless and valueless in his culture as he can possibly be, just like she would have been. Helpless, a burden on his family and friends. And don't we love that feeling, guys? Being the burden, being helpless, that's our favorite, huh? The moment we're so confused and helpless, like, I don't know what to do here, I don't know what to do here, I don't know what to do, that's our favorite. Well, here, here he is completely helpless. Jesus lowered, his friends lower him through the ceiling of a building. Jesus turns to him and says, my son. First thing he does, claims him, this is mine. That's what defines us. We are his sons and his daughters. He has claimed us as his own. What do you call a bunch of people who have the same father. What do you call them? Family. That's why in more traditional church, if you come, if you come from a more traditional church, you're used to calling people brother and sister, so-and-so, right? I grew up with that. Some of you are traditional. If you, you, it, it's confusing. You don't know whether they call me brother leg or brother Chris because brother leg sounds too official. The, even the handful of you who, who try. A couple of you call me brother pastor because you're really confused. You just have no idea what to call Like. <laughs> Of course, we call, that would be totally appropriate to call each other brother and sister. It's why when a father baptizes his daughter, he says, my sister. Because in the kingdom, though on earth he is father and she is daughter, in the kingdom they are brother and sister. We're all brothers and sisters of each other. He is our head. And that, by the way, makes Jesus, is not just our brother, the eldest brother and our Lord. Our big brother is king. Our father is Lord our friend and our Lord, he is our head. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order we may be glorified in him. What do you call the little parts that work together um, in the physical person to accomplish what the head wants? The body. 
Ephesians 1, and 23, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What do you call a relationship in which one sacrifices, serves, and leads to the very best for the other person, while the other person serves and follows with diligence and devotion in a lifelong covenant? What do you call that? A marriage. Ephesians 5 is all about this. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. The head here is a position of authority, but more importantly, a position of responsibility. Christ is the head of the church. He suffers. He dies. A humiliating, miserable death for the sake of his body. And the church is subject to Christ. So wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. To listen to them, to be devoted to them, to grow with them. We submit to Christ, completely to Christ. And to anyone he tells us to submit to. Until they call upon us to not submit to him. And then we absolutely deny their authority. We have one king, and that's Jesus only. So I was going to tell you an example of how bad we are at this, especially me. So growing up, um, and, and I've, I've seen a couple of these. My, my mom, every once in a while, when she decides to clean out the attic, a, a box of stuff from my childhood will show up at my house um, when she comes by. And, you know, you dig through it or whatever, and I've seen a couple of these. But um, I was especially bad at things that required you to follow rules when I was a kid. And, and I mean, like, ridiculous things like paint by numbers, um, so, so if you have a paint by number, some of you don't know what a paint by numbers is, and I don't, I don't know how to help you with that. I mean, I'll, I'll try, but it's a, it's like a picture and it's got blocks and the blocks have a number in them. And then down at the bottom is a key and it says you paint all the ones, all the number ones red and all the number twos blue and all the number two. And that just seemed too restrictive and demanding of, uh, to me. And so I just painted whatever color I felt like painting and whatever block I felt like painting it in because I knew better than whoever created the picture. Um, in a paint by numbers, that really just creates kind of a weird modern art thing. So I guess that's okay. Where it really catches you is in connect the dots. Um, and in connect the dots, I really did believe I knew better. I remember this distinctly thinking like, what if I don't want to connect one and two? What if I want to collect, connect one and nine? So I did. And, and I, I, there are papers in existence of just kind of random lines um, all over a, a page. Because that's, I really believed that was, that I knew better. That's, you, you may not have been that far down the path of narcissistic childhood, but you have some version of that. You think you know better. You don't need to submit to the king. You know better. You know what you're being called. You know what you ought to do. This is why, so I'm actually going to quote it. I don't quote it, for, I, I reference this quote a lot because it struck me very deep. You can imagine someone who wanted to, do, to connect the dots however they want to. This quote is going to be very painful, but I'm going to read the whole thing to you this time from Bonhoeffer's Life Together. God hates visionary dreaming. You, don't, you better believe he had my attention. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, set up his own law, and judges the brethren and, and God 
himself accordingly. He stands adamant, firm. A living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. By the way, you can take out the word community and put in the word marriage, if it would help you. That you decide, this is what it's supposed to look like, and when it doesn't, I demand that it be this way. This created, this mindset of, of doing it the way we think is right has what led to what John Piper calls 350 years of distortion in a theology called dominance and prosperity. See, being a good Christian meant being a good American for most of our lives. A good Texan, especially a good East Texan, and phenomenally a good Tylerite. Like you're actually risking your standing in the community to not be a part of a church. People will lie about being part of a church in order to risk their standing in the, not to risk their standing in the community. This has accidentally created a distortion in the church. I agree with Piper on this. We have been dominant and prosperous in the culture for a long, long time. And by the way, I praise God for it. I'm very, very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for what it meant we could be as a nation and as a church and as a people in this nation. But it creates a dangerous sense of being at home in the community. A dangerous sense of being at home in our culture. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Danny Luffelholtz, who's the pastor over at Grace UB, tells a story that has always struck me as one of the best ever when it comes to evangelism. He took his wife, he and his wife went to Hawaii for their honeymoon, and they were in a hotel that was right on the beach. I mean, 100 feet from the beach. And he says what was so shocking to him about going to Hawaii and being in a hotel on the beach is that the, the hotel had a swimming pool. And he said the most, even more shocking than that was that it was full all the time of people. He said he felt like, he felt like going down as an evangelist every morning and seeing this pool full of people and being like, there's an ocean. <laughs> a whole big ocean. You have a pool at home. You came to Hawaii to go to the pool? Go get, that's, I think that's exactly what Christian evangelism really is. We, we think we're offending people, and we are. But that's what we're really doing is saying there's a whole eternity. There's, this, there's, a, there's an ocean. Look. Ocean. That's how it, it really feels that way at times. Like, but you know, it feels that way sometimes in the church too. We've grown so used to the climate-controlled culture that we live in, the chlorinated. He and I spent a whole like 20 minutes creating C words that we could preach on this. Um, this chlorinated culture that, that we go in the church that we go, hey, I feel safe here, which, by the way, is good. I want you to feel safe here, but you're not safe outside of here. And more and more, that will probably be the case. But that's, what, that's the, the normal Christian experience. That's not abnormal. The fact that we've had that opportunity is, is really cool, but not everybody gets to do that. I am, I am still a patriot. I am proud of our fighting men and women. I'm, I'm proud of what our founders created. I think that's just fascinating. I love teaching on it. I think it's brilliant, but understand, in the end, this is not our home. I'm not beholden to any government or any government system outside of the kingdom of God. In the end, that's what unifies us. We don't have to be Americans or even like America to be unified in the church. That's, that's, the church is what unifies us. Again, a patriot. I'm sad to see my country go the direction it's going. But as a Christian, my faith is in something much, much grander, much, much bigger, much, much more eternal than that. So this is, this is an example. A few years ago, on my way to a funeral that I was a part of, I got stopped in a nearby community for not wearing my seatbelt. Now, I was wearing my seatbelt. 
I, I mean, before God and man. I was wearing my seatbelt. I mean, unless I was having a psychotic break and was truly delusional, I was wearing, I mean, that was disconnected completely from reality. I was wearing my seatbelt. I found, and, and by the way, I found out later that this specific officer had like seven times as many seatbelt tickets as any other officer in the area. Um, so I don't know if that was just his shtick or if he just had bad eyesight or what, but it was a, anyway, so I, but, so I decided to fight it in court, mostly for the experience. I thought this would be fascinating, right? <laughs> And so, and so rather than just pay the ticket, I fought it in court, and I went to court, and I made my plea, and I told the story. I'm, I'm the chaplain of Pine Cove, and I'm a licensed minister, and was on my way to do this funeral, and, and blah, blah, blah. And I told the story, and I said, listen, I don't, I don't think there's any, I'm not questioning the policeman's motives or anything. He, I think he just made a mistake. Anybody can make a mistake. I'm in a tall pickup truck. I was wearing a dark coat. It just, it just was a mistake. It's totally understandable. The policeman gets up and says, um, not only was he not wearing his seatbelt when I drove past him, but he was wearing it when I pulled him over, which means he's not only being deceptive now, but he was trying to deceive me then by putting on the seatbelt as I pulled him over. And of course, I mean, that's, that was his side of the event, and he gets to share that. We get done, and the attorney, the, the, the district or the, the prosecuting attorney comes out and meets with me, and he was like, you ever thought about being an attorney? Like, that was, that was good. Like, you're, you're definitely going to get off. He's like, that was clearly a no-brainer. We go back in, and the jury finds me guilty. And, and he is shocked. I'm shocked. The judge is shocked. The judge is like, uh, and, and the, well, the penalty the judge ended up giving me was somewhat less than the actual ticket was, which makes me think she thought I had probably been wearing my seatbelt. We get out, and the, the, the attorney asks one of the, guys, the women on the jury, hey, why did y'all find him guilty? That's really intriguing. I'm curious. Why did y'all find him guilty? And she said, pastors need to know they're not above the law. So I was an object lesson in this situation. That, now listen, that's a, what version of persecution is that? Like the tiniest version? The small version? And yet the sense of just 50 years ago, the fact that I was a minister would have, would have meant the opposite. They would have said like, no, we have an extra burden to prove he would lie under oath. We have an extra burden to prove that. But no, no, it's more likely in their mind that I would. And I need to be taught a lesson. And all pastors everywhere need to be taught a lesson in this situation. That's 10, 15 years ago. This is the culture that's growing right now is that culture. It's an embarrassment more than otherwise to be a, a Christian out loud, isn't it? So that's, understand, that's okay. We may face more than that. My dependence is not on our justice system. It is on Jesus Christ's justice system. That's the one that matters. We have a bigger picture than that. We have a, we've created a version of Christianity that's become codependent on the culture in too many ways. And by the way, when codependent couples break up, it's messy. And there's a lot of pain involved. Some of you have had codependent relationships. Some of you have had codependent relationships with churches and ministry organizations and other people. And when those break up, it's very, very painful. And we're facing that as a, as a culture, it's, as, a, as a church culture. It's okay. It's okay. When people engage with us, the consequence of who we are in Christ, that we have a king and he is the king of the kingdom and he has all the authority and we have all submitted to his authority, which is what it means to be the church, there's a consequence and that is when people engage with us, they experience Christ on earth. They experience the authority of Christ on earth in our lives, the preeminence Christ, the preeminence of Christ in our lives as we put Christ first. He defines the church. He determines the measures of success of the church. The community of people who proclaim him and we proclaim that we are his. Everyone here 
is either someone who has proclaimed that we are his or you're one of our friends or guests. We're proud to have you. We are, of course, light, salt, spring in a community where he has us. In a few weeks on January 23rd, we'll have our ministry huddle. We have three ministry huddles a year. This is the one in which we look back at the last year and, and we just have fun looking at, at numbers and, and, and nails and nickels and all the different stuff that you can look at. Just, but we, we just do it to have fun, not on Sunday morning, but it's a great thing if you're interested in that. Dinner's at 5.30, the actual conversation's at 6.30, and whatever time we have left over, we brainstorm for other ideas for ministries within the church and things that we could be doing, so I hope you'll become a part of that. Those aren't the measures of our success. Obedience to Jesus Christ is the only measure of success. All the others are great. If they're there, they're fine. If they're not, we're not domesticated Christians except to him. We're not domesticated by anybody else. We have no shepherds but one. I am, Jesus said in John 10, 14, a verse we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my own know me. Mine, his flock, his sheep, his lead. So I told you I was going to tell you, how do you follow somebody when you don't always know where they're sending you? A few years ago, um, I was in a really early morning Bible study, which I'm not very good really early in the morning, as my kids will tell you. Um, and so uh, but in that Bible study, what stood out to me was this lesson. A gentleman pulled out a pad of paper and said, I had a dream last night that God asked me to take a piece of paper and to put my life that I wanted it to be on this, on this pad of paper. To put my ministry, my marriage, my children, all that kind of stuff, to write that out. And as he's talking, he talked for a long time about it. In my brain, I'm already not listening to him. I'm now writing my own pad of paper. I hope you're doing the same thing. I'm, putting, I'm a combination of Tony Evans and Tony Campolo and... And I'm, I'm, I'm Billy Graham and, and uh, um, Jim Dobson and all, of, I mean, I've got radio, there weren't podcasts back then, radio shows and TV shows and I'm writing books and opening this and, and building that. And so my friend Abe says, at the end of the dream, God says, uh, Abe, can I see the pad? And Abe hands him the pad and God goes, man, this is good. Wow, I mean, you get this. I mean, your, your head is really screwed on straight. This is good stuff. Like, I'm, I'm very pleased with this. Wow, man, awesome stuff. So, Abe, I'm actually going to offer you your pad and say, you can have this exactly as you've written it out. Or, I have a pad. And, and I've already written out what I want for your life and ministry and marriage, kids, on that pad. Um, the front page is blank because here's what I need you to do. I need you to, if you're going to accept this, I need you to sign the front page and know you can't look at any of the other pages before you sign. When you come to church, that's what you're doing. As we are saying as a community, we sign that blank piece of paper. We don't always know what's coming and we don't always understand it and it's sometimes beyond us. At the individual level, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why you have to do that. Last picture today. So I, I, I did a search to see if I could find one of these, and uh, Karen Nolan had one. Um, this is a tapestry, but obviously this is the back of the tapestry, if you can see it. Now, this one's, this one's still good enough that you can kind of get a sense for what it probably is on the other side from the back, but the, the really intense tapestries like you see hanging in medieval castles, the back is completely nonsensical. Um, in fact, you have, to, if you have to understand the purpose of it and understand how the, to see the front and understand what the what is trying to be created here. This is all we ever see, this side of eternity. 
We need, some, we need to sign off our submission to someone who understands this side. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're sheep. Amazingly, he shares some of his plans and ideas with us because we're also sons, but not all of them. So as we pray today, my prayer is that you also will be signing off on that sheet of paper and saying, from this point forward, I submit fully to you as shepherd. If we do that, if I do that, if all y'all do that, then we are his. And we live that out in a new way every year. That's our prayer. So stand, please, with me, if you will. I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, John will be leading us in some music. But my, my hope is that you may need to do some work where you are. You may need to sit or kneel and pray. You may need to come up here and pray. You may need to confess that you've been so dedicated to your notebook, your legal pad, that you've not been willing to accept his. And so my, my prayer for you would be that you would look to trying to accept his, that that would be the confession of today. And we recognize that we are his, and that that's an amazing thing. If you've already met with our, met with our welcome home team, or if, or if you've you know, been told, hey, it's okay, you're ready, we're ready for you to join us, well, if you're ready to join us, then, then good, we're all good. You can come on down and We'd love to have you join in and living out church with us. So let me pray over us, and, uh, and then John will lead us in a time of, of invitation and reflection. Father, thank you for your good word. Thank you that you have chosen us, that you have purchased us, that you have loved us. God, I thank you that the power of your son, our shepherd, God, now give us the ears to hear him, to listen to him. We're not real good at it, but Lord, we desperately want to be. We know the sound of your voice. Teach us to listen well to what you teach us through your word and through your spirit. I ask this through your supernatural name. Amen. John.